Welcome to the Broken Pie Tribe Podcast, episode 256. I'm your host, Derek Moore. Back with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pastricelli, CEO of Zega Financial. After a well-deserved week off, Jay, what's going on? Hey, Derek, uh, a few things. By the way, episode 256, you know, 256 is uh, two to the eighth. I'm sure you I'm sure you knew that for, your, mm. for you binary folks. That's a, that's a fun number. Okay. Um, the other, great, thanks. Uh, the other thing is uh, closed at an all-time high today. We're recording this on Friday the 19th, January 19th. Closed at an all-time high today on the S&P 500. So congratulations, Derek. It took just over two years to get back, but the market has once again hit an all-time high. I'm going to get my 4,800 hat out. Do we have those? Do we have 4,800s? I, I should have a under 4,800 hat because of the wager we made for the end of the year. I just snuck it in, by the way. You That's were right. By just three weeks, you would have won our wager. But uh, 4,800 S&P hat. I don't know if they made S&P hats like they did the Dow every day, but uh, there you go. Yeah, it's no. not great. Like, look, you know, uh, it's one of those things that markets up usually – even if you're like not sure why it's up and you're like, ah, this is overblown, most people usually feel okay about an all-time high on the S&P. So I might Let's, have a good weekend. I might not. I don't know. Well, Unless before I trust me with the data today, I don't know. Well, I mean, all right. So before I get on my soapbox and talk badly about the Fed, and I know people love when I do that, since we started with the market, let's go there first. And, you know, it's it's. I think it's a good lesson of a lot of people got really bearish really bearish. Um, going into to last year, we know that the market was up 26% on a total return basis. It's been relatively flat really since mid-December, Jay, and until today. Today was kind of a, a bigger day, but it's it's up mildly. But Jay, I mean, when we look and we look at you know 2023, earnings actually declined on a year-over-year basis by a, by a little bit. I think the final was 217 and change or, or something like that, as far as, as far as I could tell. You know, next year, and we said the, the market's a forward-looking, you know, device, I guess we'll say. Uh, the next 12 months, you know, earnings are expected to be, I don't know, around 233, 234. That's about a 5.5% growth rate. In, and then you look at, you know, 2026, I guess. No, 2025. About two sixty three would be another twelve percent. Like, and anyway, I bring this up because on a, I mean, earnings are expected to grow, and generally they do grow. It's rare to have these these declines, but you know, in a valuation standpoint, we're trading. What's our forward PE right now? You know, something like it's it's over twenty. Twenty one, so, I think. Oh, forward yeah. 20, 20, 20 on the twenty point three on the forward. Yep. So, you know, 20.3 in the forward, which by the way, it's, I know everyone looks at the Schiller data and says, oh, it's got to go back to 16. Like, I, I don't know. So, you know, like earnings are expected to grow and we don't know, this is why we buy and hedge. We don't know what the market's necessarily going to do, but it feels like an interesting time. It feels like this is a hated bull market, but looking forward, earnings are expected to grow. Uh, we're nowhere near you know, we were on a price to to trailing sales, which is something I look at. We were about, you know, we were over three when we, right before the bear market started in 22, we're about two and a half today on a trailing basis. 
So wait, to explain to people what the price to sales is. Price price of what to the sales of what? Price of what to the sales of what? Yeah, it's it's the so we think about earnings per share. A lot of times people think about it as a on a per share basis on a stock. Well, the index has the same. When I said 217, when I said 234 for, for the next 12 months, that's a per share basis. You can also look at the same thing. What's the price of the S&P 500 index? And then you look at the per share expected sales or revenues. So the revenue of the stocks. So the different math there, the revenue of the, the stocks that make up the... Okay, got it. So top line revenue... Kind of uh, gross, right? Not not net. Yeah, like the the forward estimated, you know, twelve months forward is about one thousand eight fifty four per share sales per share. Okay, and you know, if we did the sales times the everything in the index, we'd be talking big dollars. So on a per share basis, but that's what I'm saying, Jay. Like it's it's not at the plus three that we saw right before the bear market. It's about two and a half. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I bring this stuff up because I still feel like it's a hated market. People are still a little bit worried about it. But like earnings are expected to grow. And, and if you, as long as earnings grow and we don't get a, a recession, I mean, you tell me what's going to happen. I don't know. But. Well, I mean, I know you aren't asking me specifically, but I'm going to comment on it well, anyway. Well, I was asking you. That's why I stopped talking, right? So. Uh, all right. Well, then I'll answer. <laughs> so look, uh, I'll go back to my default. Two things drive the market, corporate earnings and interest rates. And so let's let's think about the things I think that's fairly obvious. Corporate earnings is usually good for the market. Higher earnings, good. Lower interest rates, good for the market. So I'm going to leave the interest rate piece alone for a moment there because I know you want to talk about the Fed. But like, yeah, growth of earnings is good. And if, we, I mean, if we're not really that expensive, you could have multiple expansion, which means higher price at the same revenue for, of corporate earnings. I don't know. When I, when I look at the, uh, the price, price per share, yes, it's been on an uptrend. It's not spiking like we saw, like you said, just before the sell-off in 2022. But I also looked at, you know, there's very long periods of this being flat, right? The period of, I don't know, the beginning of the century. So to the year 2000 to, you know, 2015, it kind of hung around in that one and a half level. I bet coincidentally, that's where, you know, when you had a 16 PE, which is kind of what people are saying you should return back to. But, you know, Derek, it seems a little elevated, but it probably has something to do with the inflation piece here. Uh but look, growth, the real thing to me that's more important, forget about the sales so much because cost of goods or cost of services, all that can go up and then, you know, dig into that. I think that earnings per share number growing by, would you say, five, six, seven percent of next year is, you know, would be fairly robust and fairly impressive. So that would be great. And I know you even said, what, farther out in 2025, it's like a 12 percent growth. So that earnings growing is good for the markets. I mean, and I mean that's as simple as it can get, right? So that's that is a good thing. Of course, the multiple matters, but uh, earnings good, and looks like earnings will be up after a slight decline. So you know, whatever you take that 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 keeps me up. That you haven't brought me down yet, by the way. So I'm waiting for you to bring me down a little bit. But I feel that that will come later, maybe. And I hadn't decided whether we would take a bullish or a bearish slant. Again, we don't do anything with those slants. All time high. I got. I got to feel. I got to have you know warm fuzzy feeling. No, you get to put the hat on. Put the hat back on. That's okay, the. That's the, the thing. Warm fuzzy feeling hat like a babushka. 
All right. Well, leave the babushka on, and I'm going to talk about the Fed because I have uh, maybe a bone to pick with an out-of-context comment by uh, Waller. And I say out-of-context because somebody had posted, I think this was on Twitter, uh, uh, an interviewer is asking one of the Fed uh, policymakers, what role did fiscal policy play in causing the inflation that we've been working so hard to restrain? How big of an issue is fiscal policy? How big an issue is it now as you try to calibrate the right pace of monetary easing? Waller's answer was, well, just from a simple macroeconomic point of view, if you're going to increase the spending and debt by $6 trillion in a matter of two years and then say that has no effect on demand, that seems impossible to me. Good. I agree with that. Yeah. I was like, that's a good one. That's, that's true. Good. We all agree with that. Yeah. But he continues, Jay, it isn't the only thing that contributed to inflation, but it certainly has to have had an impact. The reason I say that is people have been talking a lot about, oh, all the last six months shows this was all supply, all supply, all supply. Well, if these are temporary supply shocks, when they unwind, the price level should go back down to where it was. It's not. And he says, go to, the, go to Fred, which is the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, pull up a CPI, take a log, look at that thing. The price level is permanently higher. That doesn't happen with supply shocks. That comes from demand. And this was a permanent increase in demand and permanent increase of debt. Where do we start with this, Jay? I mean, it's. I mean, what is he trying to make the case? It wasn't a supply driven. It wasn't supply driven inflation. Are are you kidding me? Right when you couldn't buy lumber, you remember the lumber piece? Like you just regular wasn't an increase in demand. You just couldn't get enough lumber. Or how about trying to buy a washing machine in twenty twenty one? Oh, they're all stuck sitting out at sea off the uh, coast of L A. waiting for the ships to pull in. Like seriously, it was. Like just saying that demand is the driver of inflation that we had, I I mean, yeah, I, I would disagree that it was uh it, it was it was not supply. I mean, supply to me was a huge reason for the inflation that we felt uh in 2021, 2022. I mean, I'll go and I agree with him on on the six trillion and and here's how that works. We already have a supply problem. And when you have a supply side issue, the worst thing that you can do is throw money on the, on the I was going to say gasoline in the fire, but that's what throwing money at the, the problem is. When it's purely a demand side problem, meaning there's not enough demand, then sometimes throwing money at the problem helps because it helps to restore demand. Uh, of course, what's interesting is, don't we sort of want prices to go down? What, don't you want deflation? Okay, set that to the side. But yeah, you throw gasoline in the fire and everyone is, we already have a supply side issue. Let's give, let's throw all the money out there and have people more, order more stuff that we don't have enough ships to do and the ships are backed up. So I, I think it's, it's sort of related. The bone I want to pick with is this idea that, that price levels go back down to, to where they were. And I have news for anyone who's, who's sort of new to, to following economics and, and price levels. They never really go down. It's just the rate of change year to year slows. A good example is, you know, we topped out probably close to 9% on a year-over-year basis. And I'm looking at a chart, and we had more inflation than just that. But just thinking, looking back one year and then looking today, 9%. Today, we're 3.4%, meaning 12 months ago, what was the CPI basket of goods, everything that's in there, everything from soup to nuts to, to houses and tractors and men's sportswear and everything else. So it's 3.4%. 
But Jay, I mean, uh, our audience can't see this, but I have a chart that shows the, the year over year chart going back to the 1950s. And it oscillates. It's very rarely under zero. In fact, only twice, 2000, you know, the 2008, or 2008, 2009 period. And then it was uh, in the 50s, uh, kind of the mid 50s there. But prices don't go back down. And a lot of times these raises in sort of the price floor, those are permanent. And just kind of give you a, a, an example of this. The wor- one of the worst recessions we've had was the great financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Um, Jay, I already showed you the answer, so I'm not going to make you guess, but I'll tell the audience, you know, prices went down only 3.42%. This is a US CPI, urban consumer, seasonally adjusted for those of you keeping score at home. And it took about two years for prices to go back up. But when you have whether it's a supply shock, a demand shock, when you have uh, uh, you know prices go down because of we had a, a recessionary period, it sort of resets the price level. But over time, Jay, these go up and up. And the idea that prices are going to go back down to where they were in 2019 is just, I don't know where the thinking is on that. You remember when you couldn't get a used car, Derek? You remember yes. when used cars... We're selling for like your used car that you know is two years old was worth more than you paid for it two years ago because why? Because there was so much demand for new cars. No, it's because the new car supply dried up because we couldn't get chips. Right? Like this is just so wrong to call it a demand-driven inflation. It was absolutely supply. Like how many more of these examples do I have? I don't know, but I could. I guess I'll just start throwing them out as we're talking throughout the podcast. So look, so your point is, regardless of whether it was uh, supply or demand driven, you're not going to see prices go down without a severe recession, like the Great Recession you just mentioned. Uh, So, you know, you're not going to, I wish I knew what eggs cost because then they make this more uh more more viable and anal- more analogy a better analogy i think you're not going to see eggs back which by the way remember there's a shortage of eggs derek there's another that's right one. uh you're not going to see eggs go back to where they were four or five years ago i i do think like there's things like food and gasoline that are taken out of the cpi number right on purpose like i don't know i haven't got gas lately but people tell me it's yeah hey it's pretty cheap right now uh you know we can have our electric car discussion later and how things got frozen in the Kansas City parking lot. Maybe, maybe I won't go there. Um, I do think that you have some variables and things that, you know, have some volatility like energy costs and food costs. But, you know, people are, you know, housing costs. Nope, nope. That stuff's going to be pretty solid for a while. Uh, the other thing, clothing, like, look, that's the price now. That's It's just going to cost you 12 bucks to get a sandwich at a sub shop in New York City. Sorry, it's just what's going to cost you, right, going forward. But what, I mean, to that point, Jay, that, that sub shop owner, what's the incentive for them to lower prices if, if people are willing to pay it? Like there's, this is when you bring everything to margin. I mean, it's, there's no, there's no reason to bring it down. And I think it's embedded in the economy now. You know, I don't know if you've had any work done at, at the house lately, but you know, Anybody you talk to who's in the trades is like, oh, yeah, you know, everything costs more. I remember somebody was telling me stuff costs more. I'm like, you know, lumber is back down to the pre-COVID price, right? And he's like, well, you know, it's the suppliers. Everything costs more. Like it's once you have inflation, 
all the prices uh, are raised up and I mean, no one's, no one has any incentive to bring them down. To prove the point further, I have a chart here. Again, the audience can see it. I'll walk you through it. 1970 through 1992, late 70s. Remember, we had the uh, the, the oil crisis. Uh, I don't know if you remember it, Jay, but uh, my parents, you know, I think we had an odd number license plate, an even number license plate. And you got to go like odd numbers could go on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, go get gas and the evens could go on the other days. You know, you look at a, a chart of the CPI, and this CPI includes, uh, this is not the core, this is, includes uh, food and energy. You know, we see the, the rate of change accelerate, 1978, 79, 80, into, into, you know, 81. And then that was the new floor. And then the rate of change slowed, but now we're compounding on those higher prices. And so the rate of change slowed, but inflation, you know, just kept going up. Like prices don't go down. And in fact, the Fed has said, they listen, if the price levels go down, they're afraid of deflation. You would think, you know, hey, we'd want lower prices. And, and the problem with deflation, of course, is, you know, has some, some economic bear, uh, you know, external things, pressures that, that come about that. But, but Jay, I mean, this, I, I don't know if he hasn't looked at this chart in the 1970s. I, I'm willing to send it to him. But it's just not the case. Prices don't yeah, go back I down. I think you should. I think you should send it to him. That's maybe he's great. unaware. Maybe his his date only goes back, you know, three years or something. I, get watch, I watched a great movie about that time period. It wasn't about the the inflation, but it took place during that time uh, in the in the eighties. I watched Miracle the other day. So it's a two thousand and four movie. Kurt Russell is Herb Brooks. It's about the nineteen eighty uh, U.S. Olympic hockey team. And the movie still plays. It's 20 years old, but I watched it and uh, with my son, who's was born after the movie came out or around the same time, and he still thought it was great. So I'm giving you an early recommendation, just a reminder, since you're talking about the 80s, there you go. Watch Miracle. Yeah, no, late 70s, 80s, and, and the opening of that that movie is great because they have they run actual news footage and Carter's yeah, yeah. talking. They talk about the gas and lines. They, yeah. And they show the gas lines. They show no gas, you know, and, and the whole bit. So... Um, yeah, no, that's that's a great example. So, I look. I don't know, and and this is what I said. I said this is completely out of context. I'm sure this is a long interview, and I took somebody posted a question. But look, it's my podcast, our podcast, and I can take issue with it. Um, but <laughs> it look, you I should invite rules. him to come on. We could debate it with him. Let yeah, him I'm sure. While they're coming to the podcast, yeah. I'm sure he'll. I'm sure he'll be right on. So, speaking of inflation, though, you know. We we were talking about earnings growing, and or earnings are expected to grow. We don't know what they actually will be, but um, okay. Let me take another side of this and say it's costing more to ship things now. You remember, and and we've had some fun in this show because I brought up very very early on, uh, and I've been wrong on plenty of stuff, but on this I'll take the the win. I said, hey, you know, shipping rates are. This is in 2020. Shipping rates are are really sorting to spike. I think this could be inflationary. This, we could see really high rates, and and they did. Uh, if you look at a chart of the, uh, and I'm sure you you pull this up all the time, Jay, as as I do, the uh, composite container freight benchmark rate per 40 foot box Drury, for anyone who wants to look that up on the internet, uh, with the Red Sea stuff, and we won't rehash that because we we've, we've talked about it, but prices are still going up because the ships going to Europe have to go around the southern tip of. Africa, instead of going through the, the Suez Canal, through the Red Sea. You know, if you want to say, you know, okay, what 
causes inflation to be a little more sticky. And this sort of will lead into our, our rate discussion. Uh, not only is the container rate still rising, at least according to this index, but I took a look at the the air freight rates as well. And, you know, air freight actually had only started to come down, uh, I would say, you know, yeah, I mean, 2023, it started to come down. Air freight, by the way, and, and I'm not an expert on this, but I've listened, uh, Freight Waves is a great site. And one of the, the things that people pointed out, they said, you can't just take what you ship on containers and move it to air. And he gave a great example. He said, you take a 40-foot container, like think about if you're watching a train go by, there's those containers. Like how many of those can you fit into the, the belly of a, even the biggest plane, you know, a 747 or a, uh, an A380? Like you can't fit that many. And then you look at how many go on a ship. There might be 10,000 containers on there. So Jay, I still watch this. I know this is the periphery and some of the audience is like, oh no, he's talking about the boats again. Come on, guy. Uh, but this is something I'm, I'm taking a look at just from an inflationary standpoint of pressures on there. Um, and we did see rates come down. And this goes to our earlier discussion. You know, when the shipping container rates went down, it didn't mean that people, you know, lowered their prices. They didn't have to. Yeah, well, uh, this is the thing that let it off. And yes, I always do give you credit for making that call or observation in 20. I don't know. It's four years later. You, I, I appreciate that you're still pointing to it. You, yep. you, you're going to need another win in the next four years. I'm kidding. I'm working you have on plenty it. of them. You have plenty <laughs> of them. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's that has seen air freight seem more stable. The only other thing I'd say that I heard this week was, you know, not only are the ships, you know, having to go, some are going around the horn you know, in, in Africa, but insurance is going up too. So it's a little, it's a, it's a different, um, it's a different piece, right. That's driving, uh, you know, so there's nobody stuck in the Suez canal this time around. Right. This time it's more of a, you know, maybe insurance is adding to the cost to, for, uh, the shipping containers. But yeah, this is a thing that will find its way if it, if it continues to grow, Will find its way into CPI, which will find its way into market data, which will find its way into the treasury rates. And that's lagging too. Like insurance cost is lagging because, you know, a lot of times you might think about an insurance policy. You know, you sign up and your rates are pretty much locked in for a year, knock on yeah, wood. Sticky. And, you mean you yeah. mean sticky, not laggy, right? Well, it's it's laggy because let's say your insurance rates might be raised on any number of things, but you know, if you're locked in, let's say you have your policy and you're good for your rates for the next six months or a year, like your rates are unchanging, but they catch up. And so, you know, let's say car costs go up and they have, you see those in CPI, but you may not see the ancillary stuff in CPI yet. Like it's a little bit lagging. Oh, you're but lagging to, to be reflected. Yeah. yeah. But to your point, I mean, they're sticky too. Like when's the last time your insurance company sent you a letter and said, you know what, we're going to lower, we're going to lower your, these insurance rates. You know, that doesn't really happen to me. No, no. no on commercials, they say they'll do it, but I never qualify for that as some, for some reason. Yeah. Well, this, this also plays into, I guess I'll ask you the question and I'll, I'll frame this. There's the implied Fed funds rate. And this is taking a look at what the futures market implies based upon the futures prices, what the Fed funds will, will be in the future. And just to sort of plant the landscape before I turn it to you and give your opinion on whether the market has this right or wrong. Uh, today, the effective Fed funds rate is about 5.3%. And our target, the Fed's target is five and a quarter, five and a half. 
the effective Fed funds, uh, it's just easier to say one number. That's basically what, you know, if, if people are sort of borrowing on the overnight rate and anyway, it doesn't matter. That's the effective Fed funds. The expectation, Jay, is at the March meeting, there's a 50% probability of a rate cut. And, you know, it's 50% because it's like, okay, we're forecasting half a rate cut. Well, that, so they're not actually forecasting a rate cut for March, but by May, 76 probability of a rate cut. I think it implies uh, the effective Fed funds will be down to 5%. And this is interesting. You know, if we look at July, it's, it's uh, projected to be four and a half. And by, I don't know, December of 24, about 3.99, call it 4%. You know, and that's, so basically that implies sort of like about six quarter yeah, five, five and a half rate cuts is what's implied there, yeah. right? If you go from 5.33 down to this, I mean, four, I'm going to say four, right? 3.99. So does the market four. have this right, Jay? I mean, this seems like it's overly optimistic about rates coming down. I mean, what? Uh, so we've, no, no, I mean, I think we've been on this, this, I think this, the market has it wrong. Good thing I don't, you know, have to guess if the market's right or not. But the point here is, uh, like, this is pretty aggressive and it feels like, you know, you'd need something pretty, a shock to the, you know, what would cause the Fed to do this? It's not going to be out of the goodness of their heart, right? But this is kind of a, this would mean there is some reason why the Fed needed to shock the system, right? I mean, that's a fair amount of cuts. I Look, I know they've cut dramatically in the past when things were really scary, right? They did that at the early onset of the pandemic and stuff like that. And, and wait, but I, look, Derek, this does not seem like normal behavior to me, like just regular, oh, you know, let's bring this down. I mean, if I, I could see like if CPI got, you know, really low, got below their 2% target, maybe they would do a few of these cuts. My opinion is this looks like the market's, you know, ahead of itself on the way that it's pricing these future uh, cuts in. I don't know. I think you're probably in the same camp. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I guess, let's say they replace Waller with me and they should. Uh, they, I would, I would kind <laughs> of say. Of course they should. That was know. laughing of agreement. Of course, yeah. if that's such a thing. I'm so Naturally. in agreement. And they, and they, and they might, st- you know, they might call me if they have a vacancy. I don't know why not. But they, like, if I'm on the committee, I'm saying, what's my incentive to really do this? If the economy is doing well and we have high rates, and I mean, the only reason to do it, or are you unhappy that the, the yield curve is still inverted is this also, you know, if we don't do anything, I'm putting myself in the committee now, I say, we don't do anything. We have all this dry powder if there is a problem, but it seems like the, so far the economy can handle these rates. And Steve Leeson made the point on CNBC, I think it was yesterday, what, and I don't know if it was his opinion or he's just sort of stating opinion, but the fear is you have this this double uh, this double bump in inflation, meaning they start to lower rates and then you get a a re up of the rate of inflation, the rate of change in inflation, and then they got to go and what are they going to do? Then raise the rates. Well, and that's yeah. I mean, they they've said they don't want to make the same mistake that Volcker made, which was raise rate uh, lowered rates too soon, and there's another round, a second round of inflation. So I, yeah, I mean, I think they're going to be really ultra careful about that. And there's not a lot of incentive unless their hand is forced, right? 
and it's clear that inflation is gone, and it's clear that the economy needs help. Their hand, and we just talked about earnings are projected to be up. You know that uh, that doesn't feel like their hand is getting forced. Doesn't feel like you know people are losing their jobs, and the unemployment rate is projected to be bad. So, yeah, unless like you know one of these, so one of these is wrong, right? Either the earnings number is wrong, or this is wrong. I'm going to tell you, if both of these things are right, you should be buying the market with both hands. Sorry, that was a recommendation. But I just don't think both of these can be right at the same time, right? Dropping rates, growing corporate earnings, woo, load me up, right? So it's, a, but I look, I, one of these is going to be wrong. They both can't be right. Can we start some trouble? I, are you implying that there could be political uh Influence made. <laughs> to, right. uh, I didn't bring it up at all. I didn't say there's political motivation here to to pump the market up. Now, I'll, I'll give a, a pre-recommendation. Uh, the Great Inflation and Its Aftermath is a book by Robert J. Samuelson. And he talks about, it was, it came out in, the, in 2010, but he talks, it's 1960s, 1970s, uh, into 1980. And it, it's it's a good book for sort of if you want to get in the weeds on that period, but I believe it was that book. And so I'm going to say I believe because I, I think it was the book I read it in that there's a story of one certain U.S. president sort of getting into heated arguments with the, the head of the Fed about interest rates and the need to keep rates low prior to an election. But uh, you can read that in there. It's, it's kind of interesting. So I don't, you know, some one of our clients made the point this week who I talked to that generally the Fed has been reticent to, to do some stuff too close to the election. And his point of saying that was, you know, a lot of these rate cuts, they have uh, July. Yeah. I mean, uh, September, you have uh, December. I, I don't know, you know, kind of close to the, the election. We do have an election coming up, which I'm, I'm going to start getting the ads here. In, in Arizona, but, uh, well, and, and look, by the way, the election keeps coming up in my client conversations as well, right? It's something that clients are asking our opinion and we have always taken the stance of really, it doesn't matter in the markets, right? Who's in the white house. Uh, you know, uh, we've, you've put together some great data on that in the past, Eric, I know we will dust it off again mm -hmm. and put that together, but, uh, and that's not a statement, a social statement, just saying from an, from a market's perspective, Markets really don't care who is in the White House. Yes, they could affect interest rates. Uh, yes, they can affect uh, inflation, as we, as you know, even Waller will uh, just admit it, right? So it's just what. Yes, you can have policy that impacts the markets, but generally speaking, it it it, it doesn't matter, right? Even the combo of who's in control of the House and who's in the White House. So yeah, it just people just like it's it's a. It's it's the thing like you know we all look for what would derail this run that we've had now to all time highs. What's the thing that's going to kind of kick us off of our axis here? Maybe it's maybe it's an election, but historically that has not uh, been the case. So I'm sure we'll be talking about it for another you know ten months, uh, and uh, you know it's 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 back to why we hedge. I, Derek, I, on this topic here of like what what would cause that? I mean. When we look at the fear factors, the fear indicators in the market, right? Um, 
and, and I'd look, we look at things like volatility, but the bond market also could give you a little hint as well, right? Like, Hey, where, where do we see fear in the bond market? Right. We, and we've talked about inverted yield curves, but one of the ones that we always look at is also what the spreads between high yield and treasuries. Right. And I think that, um, you know, when you look what that essentially what this means is, hey, when people are fearful about uh, uh, about economic conditions, higher high yield will end up having a bigger decline because there's more risk in it, which means their rate goes up. And so the diff we're talking about here, the difference between the Fed funds rate and the uh, uh, high yield rate. Ten year treasury and, and the high yield yield to worst. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those things that, you know, when you look at it, a higher spread between high yield and uh, and treasuries indicates more fear in the market. So, for example, during uh, uh, 2020, March of 2020, that spread got over 10 percent. It was around 11 percent, I think, Derek. Right. Correct. Um, uh, the, the difference between high yield and treasuries. Now, treasuries dropped. Right. They went to zero and high yield, you know, basically made up all the rest of that. Today, when you look at the difference, it's just under four, just under four. So even through 2022, right, it got up to about six as the spread, right? So where things look kind of dicey during that time period, the Fed hadn't, you know, finished its raising, uh, its raise cycle. But, you know, we've been, you know, it's, we've been hovering around this four level lately, and it's continuing to drop. As a reference, where four was kind of the... I would say kind of the mainstream because you go, is that good? A four, uh, a four percent spread. Twenty nineteen was about a four percent, a four percent spread the whole time, right? And I think it's pretty widely accepted. Twenty nineteen was a fairly innocuous and bullish year. Uh, same thing, uh, you know, with uh, uh, some other years out there. So I, I do think that we're hovering in that range where the market is kind of comfortable and actually. The spread has been coming down right after the after it kind of popped a little in 2022. So I don't, I don't know, Derek. I mean, the high yield market is it screaming a, a reason to lower rates to you? It's it's not. I mean, and I'm I'm using for anyone who's who's curious about this index, I'm using the Barclays U.S. Corp. High yield yield to worst. It's kind of like a play on yield to maturity minus the yield and the ten year treasury. But Jay, it is not. It is not when you see this compressing. Uh, basically, you're saying to take, you know, high yield, uh, you buy the 10-year treasury, which does have duration risk, where you buy high yield and you're getting an extra three and three quarters points. So no, Jay. And it it doesn't. It doesn't. And in fact, you know, it sort of leads into what we're seeing in volatility. You know, you mentioned the election and historically year four of an election. Uh, it's sort of sideways, more sideways than directionally in the first quarter. And then year four, you tend to see a rise in equities historically. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. But it's interesting because seasonality on presidential elections, Jade, sort of plays into what we're seeing with some of the, the volatility triggers and indicators that we look at. And we've had an indication probably, you know, since mid-December, uh, it's more of a narrow range. And I think it's worth talking about that. Yeah, that's true. So, right. So when we take a look at the volatility market, what's going on under the surface of the VIX and the VIX and the options, uh, you're right. It's telling us, uh, you know, expect a narrow set of returns, 
uh, over the next month or so. And we continue to get that to fire, right? So I think the last time that I think that fired uh, last night again, we got another, you know, hey, expect narrow, you know, returns. By narrow returns, we mean, you know, don't expect more than a 5% move plus or minus, uh, you know, over the next 20 days. That's, I mean, that's not us making a projection. We're just saying like, that's what our data is telling us when we take a look at the option information. Um, today was an interesting spike. The market was up, you know, just over 1%, which was nice and pushed it to the high end of the range, as I might have mentioned earlier, as an all-time high. The the But, you know, this data tells us like, wow, that's great. Even with this 1.3, 1.2% move today, I think since the middle of December, right, we're up, what did we say, 1.8? Right. Yeah. Like this, yeah, this yeah. was it. All the gains over the last 20 days have been most of it was today alone, which is it's nice. It's a nice little breakout if you're a chart person. Um, but, yeah, the options market tells us, look, this is, uh, you know, the, while this can always change, it tells us a little sideways. We don't have today's data in there yet. Today may have changed our opinion, but leading up to today, kind of sideways here for a little while. Right. And so. Uh, and that's, that's probably not a bad thing, right? Slow upward movements, you know, I would say climbing the wall of worry, but I don't know what the worries are right now. Like Derek, it's, we're in this kind of weird spot. Like it seems rosy everywhere to me. It does, except for, you know, there's, there's nothing that's saying screaming caution or, or screaming, you know, red stoplight, but there's stuff on the periphery. And it's kind of like, you know, you live in Florida, you may see a, a little system developing off the coast of Africa and eventually, and, you know, you're kind of watching it, but a lot of times though, those don't develop into anything. So I don't know, we'll, we'll see what happens. It, I do think it's interesting though, just looking, you know, let, let's take something like uh, the, the VIX, which is the volatility of the VIX, you know, that that was sort of really, you know, it was one of those, is this thing on for a while? You know, it really wasn't moving and it was constant. We did see it spike up above 90, uh, but it, it's, it's come back down. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing really volatility wise that's saying, and, and, you know, we've always talked about too, just because the VIX is low doesn't mean you're going to see a spike. You know, a lot of times low volatility, it sort of hangs around. So, yeah, that's I agree with what, what we're seeing there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you never know. Any kind of event can happen. That's always the case when it comes to yeah. investing. But when you look at, you know, you look at things like projected lower interest rates, higher earnings going forward. Uh, you look at, you know, spreads being narrow and high yield to the 10-year treasury being, you know, trending lower. And you look at volatility com- kind of compressing and, and showing us no, uh, you know, red flags. I don't know. Feels like makes sense that we hit an all-time high today. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. And by the way, today's a good example. You know why? Let's say you missed, and let's say you were out of the market since December twenty-second. Like today would have been the best day to be in. So, like, let's say you were like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to get out because I think it's going to." No, you would have missed it. It's tough to, to time the market. I'm just <laughs> right. Saying. You time the market. Ooh, the market's capping out. It can't see the press through that forty-eight hundred level. Well, it did today with a vengeance, right? So. Yeah, well, look, I'm sure next week we'll be going, hey, you know, when we said everything was rosy, we forgot to mention X, Y, Z, and yeah, you should run for the hills. It absolutely can happen. It's why we're, we hedge, we take advantage of higher markets. You know, one of the benefits of those lower volatile options is it's cheaper to put on insurance. It's cheaper to hedge. Yeah. So 
we do take advantage of that as well. It's funny because somebody asked me recently my opinion. Uh, I was, you know, going through just some of the strategies and, you know, that they're in and everything. And they just asked my opinion. And I said, honestly, my opinion doesn't matter. I said, if I show you the, the, the track record of predictions, not only my own, but the, the professional. Remember, 29 out of 30 economists said there was going to be a recession in 2023. And I, I made the remark, Jay, and you'll appreciate this. I said, the nice thing about when you buy, you know, you have sort of a system where you get along the market and you hedge is you don't have to, you really don't have to pick. Like, I almost feel bad for people, the, the managers who are trying to pick direction. Like, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And I'd rather not. I'd rather assume that. And it's, it's kind of thankless, right? I it mean, is. You know, when you're, when you're wrong, you, it's, and for making a decision, uh, you're, you're saying, hey, I think I know something that the market doesn't know. Or I, um, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction here. And when it doesn't pan out, it's, you know, it's hard to continue to keep your clients trust. It's, you know, for us, it's much easier to have something that has proven itself over time. And look, did we need to be hedged in 2023? Uh, it was a pretty strong year. Not really. I mean, maybe that beginning of the year, it felt good to be a little hedged in March with the banking, mini banking crisis. Um, and then maybe even in October. But overall, if you didn't, you know, didn't, you didn't really need the insurance last year for the market, that's okay. But, you know, we do know 30% of the time the market is not up. So it's one of those things that we will, we, we are a bigger believer in. It's, it's better to manage uh, the downside and manage your risk, which is the only thing you can really control when you invest um, and not, you know, leave yourself out from missing the upside. I mean, that's the alternative, right? If you're worried about the down years, you can hedge or you can, you know, you could sell. And then the selling piece, you miss days like today because you sold, uh, you know, thinking you needed protection versus just having the hedge and leaving your upside exposure on. So Derek, we could probably write a book about hedging. Um, didn't you do that at one point? Oh, oh, right. I might've done that. I'm yeah. Buy and hedge, uh, available on Amazon or wherever you get your books and good to pair with a broken pie chart. And then at some point we should just develop a cover for our future book that at some point we'll write together and we'll just do coming soon. And it would, it would just going to be up there. Yeah. Coming soon. We'll see if we get some pre-orders. Yeah. Yeah. But Actually, that's the thing. We get some pre-orders. We'll, we'll write it. That sounds like a great idea. Oh, we should totally do that. All right, I'm going to yeah. look into that. Speaking of other recommendations, you gave uh, me. By the way, I love the movie Miracle, and I re I remember watching that live in 1980. And one of the fascinating things is uh, Al Michaels is you know, do you believe in miracles? I listened to a an interview he did about that, and you know, back then, so the game was played. I think at five o'clock in the afternoon, no internet. No, no way to get the score or anything. They broadcast it at 8 p.m. Eastern, so prime time. But Al Michaels tells the story is they called that game and then they had to go and call the next game like it never happened. Like they didn't even know, you know, the pretenders did not even know the outcome of the U.S. game. So, you know, him and Ken Dryden, imagine that. They're like, oh, oh yeah, my we'll gosh. Just, and, uh, and Jim, oh, what's, what's, Oh, he's the famous guy. It was the anchor of the Olympics back then. It will come to me. Um, but he was Jim McKay, but he was on the preview show for a game that already happened. And I remember there were people celebrating the back, but he, they pretended like the game didn't happen because it was on a, a two hour, three hour tape delay. So oh, wow. 
Wow, wow, wow. Well, I, I, you could catch actually the the broadcast. Like, so after we watched the movie, we just, you know, YouTubed, uh, you know, the actual game. And you could watch the whole game. You could watch the goals of the game. You could watch the last, you know, two minutes of how the, the broadcasters were counting down. 30 seconds to go, 20 seconds to go. Yeah. And then in those last three seconds when he says, do you believe in miracles? It was great. It's great to watch it. Uh, I mean, it was, it was great. And, and just, just for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know about hockey or just doesn't understand how big of a, the Soviets, uh, Soviet Union back then, it wasn't called, you know, it was back at USSR, but Russia, Soviets, they, uh, they hadn't lost in forever. And there's the great scene in the movie where, so if you're down in hockey by a goal towards the end, you pull your goalie to get an extra skater on. And there's this point in the movie where they're like, he's, they're not pulling Michigan, you know, cause he was the goalie and her Brooks, uh, Russ, uh, Kurt Russell is playing her Brooks turns to the Craig Patrick character and says, he doesn't know what to do. Like they'd never been down. They'd never been down at the end of the game. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I'll give a, a pound the table on that one. I'll give a quick one. And that's uh, so a year, year 2000 movie called the yards was on uh, showtime recently. And it's got Mark Wahlberg, James Kahn, Charlize Theron, Justin Phoenix. It's, uh, it's based in New York in the 1980s. And uh, it's streaming right now on looks like Paramount and Showtime, but it's called The Yard. It's got a great cast and uh, it's a good period piece, you know, old school, 1980s, probably early 80s, uh, New York City. So there you go, Jay. Got it. All right. Well, Derek, the only other one I started watching was an older show called Longmire, which uh, just started kicking off I'm a few episodes in. It's, it's, you know, it's on Netflix. It's been on for a while. A while. It seems pretty good so far. Just kind of filling fill the time with that one while we're waiting for new stuff to come out. Longmire. All right, we'll check it out. And uh, if the Fed does want me to join, uh, please let me know because, Jay, I'd have to give you my two weeks to, uh, you know, then I'm going to join the Fed. But I haven't right, gotten the yeah, call I'll, yet. I'll, I'm I'll start looking uh, for, for, you know, kind of a, some added capacity if you're going to leave. Yep, sounds good. We'll talk about that and other things next week. Uh, I'll let everybody know if Waller or anybody does reach out to me. Jay, thanks again for coming on. You got it, Derek. See you, everyone. Bye.